You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now, as is our custom, to open the Bible with me. You will see a paperback Bible on the tray of the seat in front of you, so that if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone uh, in that blue paperback Bible, you can make your way to, I believe it's page 475. We're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, the good news of Jesus, according to one of the apostles, uh, Matthew, and we'll be in the ninth chapter, and we'll be reading the first eight verses there. So, So if you don't have a smartphone or a Bible, please take that Bible, let it be our gift to you. And continue to read it. Let, it. let it be something that even even now you can't steal, but we want to give it to you. And if you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, pass it on to them. And so you'll see, don't be afraid of the table of contents. The big numbers are the chapters and the smaller numbers are the verses. And so we'll be in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you, if you make your way through the table of contents, you'll see that this is the first book, uh, the first book of what we call the New Testament. And it's the first of the four Gospels. Literally, the word gospel just means good news. The Gospels, the good news of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about. And it sets us on a new trajectory. Everything in the story of the Bible turns on this. And so so we've been walking through this good news of Jesus according to Matthew. And we're going to get to know him even better in the weeks to come as he enters, enters into the story himself. But up to this point, he's been introducing us to Jesus by telling us who Jesus is, what he's done, and and begins to point to significant things that are meant to grab our attention. They're meant to be things that that we start to kind of like hold on to. They become anchors for us to understand who this Jesus is. And one of the ways he's been introducing us to who Jesus is, is to introduce us to people that don't get him. We even saw last week people that reject him, people that want nothing to do with him, people that have questions and doubts towards him. And so I say that because if you're in this room, and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't say you're a believer in Jesus or a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're just not sure, maybe you have lots of questions, I want to encourage you. This is, this is one of the things that Matthew wants to speak to, our doubts, our questions, people that maybe like you're like, I, I, this is all a bunch of mumbo jumbo, this, this is some fairy tale and so I want you to come to the text with all of those questions. Those, those kinds of questions seem to, they're offensive to us. We become defensive, right? We, we don't take them well, but I have good news for you. Jesus is not offended by those things. Uh, Jesus welcomes all the questions, and he offers himself as the answer. And so up to this point, we've, we've heard about the miraculous beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, a ministry that's announced we saw at the very end of the most famous sermon ever recorded, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, concludes with Jesus uh, teaching and the astonishment of the crowds. And they say when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had, and this word is incredibly important. We'll see it again today, and we'll see it throughout the rest of, of the Gospel of Matthew. He was teaching them as one who had authority. I'll say more about that in just a moment. And not as their scribes. We're going to be reintroduced again today. The very last verse, uh, the verses of of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus sends out his disciples based on what he says. It says, Jesus came and said to them, in all his resurrected glory, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he says, therefore go. He sends them out. So this theme of authority, this theme of power, is something Matthew wants to provoke you and I with. And I use that word provoke intentionally. You will see uh, a theme that emerges today in the reading and that the character of the scribes is going to follow us all the way to the end of the story. 
That is that Jesus and what he says and what he has come to do is provocative. And to a certain degree, if it doesn't kind of provoke you, you probably haven't read it. You probably haven't taken it that seriously. So, as Jesus has wrapped up his teaching, he demonstrates his authority through acts of power. So we've been, and over the last few weeks, as we see this, the second, of three, the second triplet in a series of nine from chapter 8, 9, and 10 of miracles and acts of power, I've been posing to you this question. If you, as we think about power and authority, if you had the power to do anything at all, what would you do? And what does that say about you? I mean, seriously, if you could do anything at all, if you had the power or authority to do anything, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And this may just be because I was raised on time machine movies, but also because my own sinful nature is not towards repentance, but of just regret. If I had all the power and authority, I would go back and do things different. I would go back and just redo everything. Now, of course, what does that say about me? That makes, it says that I think, I think all I need really is, I don't really need Jesus' help. I just need a second chance, right? It was just a mistake. I would do it better the second time. There's no way I would make the same mistake twice or a hundred times. So we come to the text with those kinds of questions. And Matthew says, Jesus is that one who has all that authority. And we're invited to consider what it says about him and the way that he exercises it. Two weeks ago, or, or two sections of the text ago, we saw that he has power and he is Lord over chaos of the storm and nature. Last week, we saw that he has authority over evil and even these spirits and demons. And this week, we'll see he exercises authority in a more powerful way even than those. Beginning in verse 1, and getting into a boat, he crossed over. That is the Sea of Galilee. That's been a central theme in this last chapter and a half. Getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. I pray that these become God's word to us. God's very words, more than ink on a page, but God's words and words of comfort and encouragement for God's people. This is the third in a series of three acts of power in which we are meant to wonder, to marvel at the authority of Jesus. 
If you'll follow me, even in the text, go back to the, the beginning of this triplet. Remember, there's, there are nine, roughly ten, uh, because two are kind of lumped together, you'll see in the next section. But there are nine different acts of power, miraculous demonstrations of Jesus' authority and power over all sorts of things. And in between those, uh, those nine are, in sets of three, demonstrations and calls to discipleship. So that we'll be sure to see that discipleship, that being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is to be subject to the power and authority of Jesus. We'll see that next week at the end of this little triplet. But if you want to go back to the first of them, right after he speaks about the cost of following him in verse 23, got into the boat. Now this is, he's going back and forth across this Sea of Galilee. Last week we saw he went to the southeast, to the place of the Gadarenes and the outsiders, the, the more Gentile pagan place. Now he's back to kind of his hometown, right? Not Bethlehem or Nazareth, but a place where chapter 4, we found out uh, Capernaum, he had started to, to serve as like his headquarters for the ministry he would do publicly. But in verse 23, it says he got into the boat, and at the end of that section, look how people respond to even his own disciples as he calms the winds and the waves. Verse 27, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Did you hear that? Their, their response to Jesus' acts of power was to marvel. But then last week, did you hear, uh, if, you, if you kind of remember, you might hear in the text, jump out, verse 34, the end of that act of power. And behold, all the city, after he cast out these demons in a display of might and power, they came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, what they do? They begged him to leave their region. They were so terrified of the power that Jesus had demonstrated that they wanted him to leave, go away. And then what was the conclusion of this section here? Verse 8, this might and power demonstrated by Jesus was so amazing that what did the crowds of people who had followed him do? It said they were what? Afraid. They glorified God, but they were terrified. So the, the third of this, in this set of three, acts of power all come with Matthew telling us how people respond. And it's not probably how you would think. Or maybe it is exactly how you would think. But it's it's meant to be shocking for us that when Jesus did these amazing things, people, their first reaction was averse. Their first reaction was to cast him out, to, to wonder and be confused, and in that sense, dismissive. Go away from me. We, we don't want any of this. And each of these three, the people respond powerfully. They marvel. They wanted them to leave. They wanted them to leave. And then this week we see in this section, they were afraid. But the logic is clear in this text. Jesus' demonstration of authority and power, which he has been doing over nature, over the demonic, over all sorts of uncleanness and other things that he's been healing in the chapter before, all of these things point to something amazing. That Jesus, and he put these three together, Jesus has, the, has authority over chaos, all of nature, over evil, and what we see here, over sin. He provokes you and me and even the scribes, the, the, the highly educated religious leaders of the day, by saying something profound to the man who needed physical healing. Did you hear it? Your sins are forgiven. And the logic is clear here. Jesus' authority to cure this man and to perform acts that are miraculous is evidence that he has the authority and power to forgive sin. Now, I want to introduce you 
in light of that, to at least three different subjects. One, Jesus. You see some things Matthew introduces us here about Jesus. Two, the self-confident. You might even say the self-righteous as he introduces us to the scribes. And then thirdly, to the crowds. So first, I want to introduce you to Jesus, or rather, Matthew wants to introduce us to Jesus through this act of power. He says, getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. That's only in, it's only important maybe insofar as you remember where we've been. If you'll remember the first act of, of miraculous power began, you can go back there with me, uh, at, in verse 22, and he says, follow me and let the, uh, or excuse me, verse, uh, forget, forget all that. The section on discipleship begins in verse 18. It ends in, 20, in 22. He says, Jesus saw the crowd around him and then he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now, it's only important here that he returns back in this section insofar as you remember that everything that he's doing is by design. Now, that's especially encouraging for us because if you'll remember, the first thing he said is like, let's get into a boat and let's go. Uh, Oh, by the way, let the dead bury their dead. And the first thing that happens is they feel like their lives are threatened and they are going to die because of a a storm that, that is about to kill them. And Jesus delivers them by exercising power over nature, showing that he and God are are one. They have authority over all things. Next, we see that he went to the other side, again, in verse 28. So they cross back to the southeast, and he exercises authority over the demonic until now he gets back. Again, just in your mind, think this is exactly what Jesus meant to do. This is Jesus going for a stroll, right? I don't know, when you get in a boat, I don't know where you go or what you do. It's usually some sort of a vacation. Think this is what Jesus does. When Jesus goes on a walk, when Jesus goes to travel, this is what Jesus does. He demonstrates his power and authority in an amazing way. So the first thing we see in verse 2, the faith of others, now this is mysterious. You just kind of kind of hang with me. Matthew more and more is going to teach us more about this in the chapters to come. But the faith of others has power. In other words, Jesus sees our faith to help others. As we see Jesus and are introduced to him, this is not the first time. A few, uh, a few accounts ago, if you'll remember, the second in the first triplet, Jesus healed, uh, healed the servant of a centurion. And the centurion, do you remember, was, was commended by Jesus to have great faith. And what was he doing? He was coming to Jesus, and he says, and Jesus is like, I'll go with you, I'll heal this person. And what did, what did, the, what did the centurion, the pagan, the person that, like, think of, the, think of the provocative nature here, the people you would, you were like, Jesus surely hates those people, right? That's certainly the case. This is that guy. And yet Jesus says, he's the one with great faith, because when he comes to Jesus, he says, don't bother coming to my house. I, too, am a man under authority. I tell someone to go, I tell someone to come, and it happens, as if to imply that all Jesus needs to do is to say what needs to happen, and he does, and his servant is healed. And so this outsider is commended by Jesus as having great faith. This is not the last time you'll see this. But notice, his faith was, was not just for himself, but his faith was that he saw something about Jesus, and he knew that Jesus was the right person to go to. And so also we see here. Now, if you go back a little bit, uh, Pastor Chris Wallace, a a Bismarck church planter that we as a church support financially, um, preached on this same particular passage, but not in the Gospel of Matthew. You see, Mark and Luke tell this story, and they point to the most provocative thing 
and you might even remember it, is how the friends get their friend to Jesus. They rip a hole in the roof and drop this, this man who's paralyzed down on the mat, uh, presumably interrupting whatever it was that Jesus was doing. And that seems to be the most powerful picture in that story. Now, I'm not going to draw any attention to that because that's not the point Matthew wants to make. All of the focus here is on the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. That's what's provocative. But all that to say, real friends get their friends to Jesus. You see the compassion and the care of like the centurion, and you see here as well the compassion and care of friends. And something in them, something in them knows that they see a need in their friend and they see an opportunity in Jesus. And real friends are always aware of those things. Real friends take their friends to Jesus. And a mystery is proposed here that the faith of others has power, has real power. Not salvific, not saving power, right? You, I can't profess faith on your behalf. I can't believe and trust for you, but we're introduced to something mysterious. It has power. God uses it. And Jesus sees it. Jesus recognizes it. Now, I'll just illustrate it in this way. We lean on the faith of others regularly. That is what community is. That is what we strive for as a church. That is what we are every time we gather. Now, I just want to, maybe, maybe if you wouldn't call Connection Church your, your church home, I want to invite you into consider what being a member of this church would be in light of just this. This is, this is it. This is the epitome of what it means to belong to a church. We're the people who are radically committed to taking our friends to Jesus. That's it. And before you think that's something like paternalistic or condescending, oh, those people, I want, to, I want to be the first to tell you I'm one of those people. And I want to commend this church to you because regularly I don't have the faith I need to go to Jesus. I don't have the trust. I have too much doubt and cynicism and skepticism. And you know what happens? God puts people around me to get me to Jesus anyway. It happens every Sunday. Every Sunday. And so many of the truths that we see here are, are proclaimed already in the songs that we've sung. And yet sometimes, I don't know about you, for whatever reason, right? Think the parable of the sower, the cares of this life, my own rebelliousness, my own sin, anxiety. I can't hear those words. Right? I, don't, I don't naturally think those words. Oh, yes, we will feast in the house of Zion. That is, yes, that's my joy this morning. I, I might have just not slept very well. I'm too tired to think those things. I might be freaking out about the sermon I'm about to preach, so I can't really think those things. And lo and behold, the Lord is kind enough to put members of this church, people up here on the stage, and people singing in the congregation to snap me out of it and to remind me and to be all that we're called to be here, real friends take their friends to Jesus. And I'm not selling you something there. I'm telling you this is what the Lord uses even in my own life. And maybe if you're in this room and you would call yourself a Christian, stop for a minute and realize the profound love, compassion, and providence of God. You are only here in this place because someone else brought you. 
in some way, shape, or form, if you would call yourself a Christian, you're only a Christian because someone, someone moved by the Spirit of God told you about Jesus. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul encourages New Testament churches with the language of, of sending and going and proclaiming, even so far to say that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. And it's this picture that who, who's going to get the news out unless someone sends them? And so this, this is happening, and I'm inviting you even now to experience, if nothing else, gratitude. Can you just stop for a minute and think about all the people God used to get you to this place? Now, I know right now you might be mad at those people for getting you to this place. Show them some grace. But as Paul would tell the Corinthians, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any hope and encouragement in Christ, he says, like, make my joy complete. Rejoice with me. So stop for a moment. If you have any consolation or comfort in Christ at all, can you stop and think about how God used a person to grant it to you? The faith of others has power. Someone, maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was someone like me, a, a, someone preaching out of, out of Scripture. Maybe it was a, a teacher, a, who, a coach. Who knows? But just stop for a minute and marvel at the goodness of God that's pictured here. The beautiful work that happens starts with a friend, some people who saw a need and thought and knew, and knew that Jesus could help. They seem to know something about Jesus, and they seem to know something about their friend that compelled them. And this is each of our stories. Someone knew better than us and pointed us to Jesus, and we commit as a church to do that together. And maybe today is simply a great occasion in light of this text to thank God for that, to thank God for that person in your life. I want you to see then three different beautiful pictures about Jesus all piled into his words. So the friends bring their paralyzed friend lying on a bed to Jesus, and Jesus saw their faith, remember, he sees something there, and then turns to the friend that they brought. It's as if he, he notices it. He, he sees something, and there's something about it that he's commending, and Matthew, therefore, is commending to us. And in his words, there are three powerful truths. One, God encourages us through Jesus. Look at the three parts of what he says. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The first thing, take heart. The, the, my, my favorite, if you, if you have a King James or a New King James, it'll say, uh, translation, it'll say something like, be of good cheer, right? And so just, just stop for a minute and think about that. In his physical distress, Jesus looks at him and goes, be of good cheer. Already, already he's speaking a profound word, right? But Jesus is the encouragement, the admonition, the love of God made visible for us. God encourages us through Jesus. If you have some then, here, here's, I mean, let me speak just a moment. If, if you have some suspicion that this Jesus might be able to help you, especially if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, and maybe you're just curious and you have questions, if you have something in you that maybe is just curious, right? 
Can this Jesus answer some of my questions? Is this Jesus worth all the singing and the hoopla? I want to encourage you, run with that. Lean into that. Jesus is a helper. Jesus can lift our broken spirits. Hear the heart of God towards you and to me. That the sorrow that you and I experience, and I mean real sorrow, real distress, the real pain, the real burdens, the real fear, I mean the real thing that you know is true and you don't want to admit to anyone else, just think for a moment what it would be like to to have your eyes open to the possibility that Jesus has the authority over all things and the way that he exercises his power, right? I mean, just think about this. Like, think about the most powerful person in the world and what they would tell you to do, right? right? Think of the most powerful man or woman that you can think of, the most powerful entity or being, and think about what they would do with their authority and their power and what they would order you to do. Now imagine the most powerful entity in the universe exercising that power and authority by ordering you and me to cheer up. Do you get it? Does it confound or provoke your imagination? That the Lord of the universe, the author of all things, looks at this person in his sorrow and says, I'm not going to leave you in your despair. And he looks through this story at you and at me and says, I'm not going to leave you in your current sorrow. It may feel like this is never going to end, but the prophecy and promise of the Old Testament fulfilled for Jesus is this this sorrow lasts but for the night, and joy comes in the morning. And so see the compassion. God encourages us through Jesus. Secondly, after he says, it's going to be okay, right? Take heart. He says, my son. I don't want you to skip over that. God adopts us through Jesus. Now, this is a powerful doctrine that the, that the Christian church holds tightly to. You're going to see it show up for the rest of the New Testament. That God takes the stranger, the wanderer, the outsider, and adopts that, that stranger and that wanderer as his own. So that all of the rights that come with the inheritance of being the son or daughter of God now belong to us because of Jesus. And you get a foretaste of it here, don't you? That Jesus looks at this person, the, the, the words he uses here, it's, it's not like pejorative or condescending. It's, it's the language, the colloquial or familial language that a father or mother would use for a child, their own child. And notice that God adopts us through Jesus, and you see a hint of it here, that God looks at you and me, and one of the ways that Jesus has come to renew us is through adoption. That's the picture of what Christ has done. It's as if that God looks at all your problems and all your messes, and instead of saying, what a, what a wreck, what, a, what an absolute disaster this person is, he looks at all of our messes, all of the things we've done to rebel against him, all the things that we've hurt others with and hurt ourselves with, and says, yeah, I want, I want that for my own. I want that to live with me. I want to stamp my last name on that. I want to pass on all my privileges, my entire inheritance onto that. And we get a picture of it. That Jesus looks at this person in his sorrow 
And you begin to get a picture of what he's about to do through his encouragement, but second, through his adoption. And lastly, most importantly, through forgiveness. God forgives us through Jesus. You see the father heart of God towards us as he encourages, as he speaks the language of adoption and family, and then you see the father heart of God in his forgiveness. Now, the man was led by his friends for healing. Beginning in chapter 4, we know the public ministry of Jesus, including the last whole chapter, has included acts of miraculous power where people under some sort of oppressive power of sickness, uncleanness, disease, demonic, uh, de- demonic oppression, you name it, Jesus exercises a delivering power, and his friends bring him to Jesus for that. But notice what happens. Healing is only the subplot. Healing is only the context for what Jesus is going to do. And we're invited to consider a profound mystery, a mystery that provoked these people deeply. Our physical circumstances, even the most painful ones, are but the subplot to our standing before a holy God as sinners. Our physical circumstances, as desperate as they may be, even when they are especially the most desperate, even then, are only symptoms, even then are only the effects of a deeper root wickedness, of a brokenness and a problem, a pathology that confounds our imagination. Even those awful things, the worst thing you could think of in this life is but a symptom of the actual worst thing in existence, namely, that we will stand before God that God has created all things a certain way and we have rebelled against him. So apply what we learn here about Jesus. Sin is an offense against God that only God can forgive. Let me illustrate this by just a a quick vocabulary lesson. And so if you're in the room, uh, you're one of our fourth and fifth graders, you'll know this from the New City Catechism. What is sin? So you can start singing, right? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world in the world that he created rebelling against him by living without reference to him not being or doing what he requires in his law thus resulting in our death and our dis- and the disintegration of all creation so sin is a cosmic disorder sin is a cosmic dysfunction Now, if you're in this room and maybe you're new to to the Christian faith or you have questions or even skepticism about it, you'll recognize that's a word that we don't usually use. And here's why. There are different, again, as a vocabulary lesson, when we think about an offense or a transgression or a trespass, something that someone has done against someone else, the way we describe it, the very vocabulary speaks of the nature of the offense and the nature of the person who offends and the person who is offended. For example, right? If a in a game or in some sort of a sport, if you, if you break the rule, it's called a what, right? A foul or a violation, right? If you do something wrong in, in, a, in a game or in a sport, the, the language we would use for that kind of 
in that sense, breaking against what was intended to happen, we call that a foul. And so that word foul fits in a particular context, doesn't it? Right? Like a, you know, someone, someone apart from a, a, you know, the playing field or a game wouldn't come up to you and say, you know, like, blow a whistle or throw a flag, right? Or like an umpire, like, and, and call a foul, right? That's, that's not how that would work. Because that, that only makes sense in that, in that particular context. So, for example, if you, if you transgress the law, what's that called? It's called a crime. Same thing. That's a word that fits in a particular context. In the same way that maybe, you know, you, would, you wouldn't on a football field say, that's a crime. I don't think. I mean, that'd be hard. But like if, if a penalty, a, a violation in this case, like it's not the same as a crime because the nature of the person committing the offense and the one offended against is, is very different. If you transgress the truth, it's called a lie. You get the idea? And so, what we have here and what we're introduced to consider is a new category. It's a way of thinking about a particular disposition or act that is speaking something significant and specific about the person who's transgressing and the one who is transgressed against. And that word is sin. And I know that that might come with a ton of negative baggage with it, right? That might come with all sorts of awful things. And I just want to encourage you, this is the language that the Bible uses. Why is that? Well, zoom out. Zoom out to all of existence and how it came to be. Zoom out to all of the cosmic order and the way that it functions, from the laws of gravity, right, to the speed of light and the speed of sound, like these things that function in consistent and beautiful ways. Zoom out and see that. And what we learn is that sin is to set ourselves, did you hear that language, without reference to the created order. It'd be like, uh, it'd be like for example, if you, you went up to a cliff and you were like, I'm going to defy the laws of gravity. And you just decided to walk off the cliff, right? You, this, may not, this may shock you. That would be living in a way that's out of order. You would be living without rec- reference to a greater order. A greater order, mind you, that when you live without reference to it, <laughs> you will experience the consequences And maybe others will too. Think of it this way. Imagine all of creation as a work of art, of a benevolent, a good and kind creator. All of it. I mean, it's beautiful. It's not just tolerable. It's beautiful. Right? We have things like like apples and oranges. Things that just naturally are sweet and amazing. And they, they just are. We don't just subsist on things. We, we have things that allow us to thrive. And this is all a picture of the creator of the universe. This is not an accident. It works so well and works so beautifully because it's a picture of the creator. Now imagine, imagine going into a museum with a phenomenal and amazing work of art. Imagine, right, going to see the Mona Lisa Right? Imagine to see a Monet or right? imagine, imagine you know, actually seeing the haystacks, right? Imagine seeing Van Gogh's um, beautiful, like, impressionistic. Right? Imagine going up to it. Imagine, and now, like, 
and doing one of a few things. One, imagine just like defacing it, right? Imagine walking up to it and throwing something on it or, or trying to paint over it or, or even imagine taking the Mona Lisa off of the wall and, and maybe laying it onto, onto your table and using it as a, a decorative placemat, right? Imagine taking some 19th century Dutch painting by, the, by Grunewald, these, these hard-to-find works of art. They're large, they're huge, they're the size of a, of a wall. Imagine taking it and using it as a rug. Can you see how that would be an offense against the artist? Can you see that, how that would be living disorderly? It would be living out of order, out of the original intent. Friend, that is what the authority of Jesus is. At the risk of sounding too simplistic, this blows my mind every time I say it, so I'll just invite you into it. If you were reading a book and you were discussing with someone it's on its meaning, imagine what would happen if the author of the book stepped into the room and exercised, here it comes, authority over what you're reading. You get it? The reason Jesus can heal and restore is because he's the creator. The reason we can take what's broken to Jesus is because he knows how to fix it. He invented it. We can take our issues and problems to God because it's better than just like taking something to the manufacturer to have it refurbished. The creator and inventor of this thing can make it new. And so when we live out of order, we live out of God's created Order. We live out of the goodness that he has designed for us to exist in. An existence, think, an existence in which there was no death, no suffering, no disgrace, no disrespect. When we live out of order with the way that God has created things, the language we use is sin. And that shouldn't bother us because the creator, the inventor, knows how to fix it. Sin is a disorder that is only remedied by forgiveness. And Jesus offers forgiveness as God. That may seem like I'm overstating the point, but I want you, if you want, to, for the next week to read ahead. Because verse 3 tells us exactly how big a deal this is. How do the religious leaders of the day respond? That's blasphemy. Now, in the other accounts, Mark and Luke tell us why, but Matthew assumes you'll know. Matthew assumes you know what a sin is. The word sin automatically tells us that this is an act or a, a way of disorder with this person against God. That's what sin is, right? We don't use sin in any other way. And for Jesus to step in and say, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is identifying with God, the creator himself. This ought to provoke you. Jesus is the one who speaks as God. And I say provoke you because this is the thing that got Jesus executed. That's how big a deal this is. If you think from, oh, this is not a big deal. This is the first time we find we're introduced in the Gospel of Matthew to the scribes and the opposition they have towards Jesus. But put a, put a pin in this one. This one's going to come back. Jesus speaks as God. So for many of you, maybe, maybe you're from a tradition or familiar with tradition or a way of seeing the world where you'll say like, well, we don't believe Jesus really is God. Jesus never said that. That's not true. There are many instances, and in this case, we find one of them. 
Jesus speaks as though he has the authority of God. He's speaking on behalf of God. And that's absurd, right? That would be like if right now I went up to the top of the hill, right, went to the state penitentiary, walked inside, and walk up to some person with a really long sentence, being punished for some crime that they'd committed, and saying to them, you're free to go. You're free to go, right? The first thing you or anyone listening would ask is, who does that guy think he is? Uh, in the most charitable case, they'll at least ask, who are you, right? Are you like a judge or something? Is, that, is, there, is there some reason why you think you have the authority and power to do that? Think of another case. Imagine, for example, if, 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 if someone offended you. Think of a person, right? Let's just, for the sake of illustration, let's name that person Jonathan. That's not too far-fetched for many of you, right? And imagine that person who has offended you has done something awful to you, and I just walked in and I said, Jonathan, I forgive you for the offense that they committed against you. Same thing, you would be like, what jurisdiction do you have here? You don't have the ability to do that. You can't speak for another person. And notice that is exactly what Jesus is doing as provocatively as he possibly can. It's not what we expect. You are forgiven. And notice, for the, for the man who was needing healing, he likely would have said or thought, that's not what I came to you for. That's not what my friends brought me here for. And I want to encourage you, you may be coming to this place and you may be curious about Jesus seeking some benefit. And I want to, I want to pour fuel on that. Keep going. Run with that. That's good. God can use that. But what Jesus offers is actually far greater than the felt needs that we come with. The thing that you come to Jesus with is good to bring to Jesus. He has the power and the authority to heal it. And yet, in his healing and in his restoration, in his redemption, in his reconciliation, he won't only fix that thing. Jesus doesn't turn these people away. In fact, he meets them through. He meets them right in the middle of what they're crying to him for. This is good news for the hurting Jesus can offer you a healing and restoration and redemption that's greater than what you currently can imagine. And the benedictions of the Apostle Paul will, will be dismissed with it even today is that there's a glory to Christ, him who was able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ask. Because after all, what were these people were just asking, right? Will you heal my friend? Jesus is like, I got something more. Or even imagine you're forgiven. And what are the scribes are like, What? You can't do that. Do you get it? And this man and his friends wanted him to be restored. But Jesus did for him beyond literally what they asked and literally beyond what the scribes could imagine. And so to you who are hurting and looking for relief, I'm inviting you to a kind of hope that is more right now than you might even dare imagine. Jesus can heal you in the ways that you're aware of, but he can also restore you in the ways that you don't even know you were broken. Well, let's learn about the scribes briefly and then the people. 
To question Jesus' ability to forgive sins is to oppose him. The scribes should have known the prophet Isaiah that Matthew introduced us to. We, our call to worship was right out of this prophecy that eventually God is going to do something. Prophet, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 35, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees to say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Do you hear it? Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and he will save you. And then, and we'll see this story in a couple weeks, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame man will leap like a deer. It doesn't tell us. I like to think that however this man stood up, might for the, for the open-hearted in that room, they might have thought, he's like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Listen and learn from the scribes. The scribes knew the prophecy of Isaiah and learn from their mistakes. Come to Jesus with an open mind. Come to Jesus with an open mind. I regularly run into people or kind of the idea that like, oh, I've tried Jesus. I gave him a shot. I've considered it. Okay, in what way? Come to him with an open mind because to come to him in any other way, like the scribes, is to oppose him. Notice how Jesus says that. He doesn't say like, oh, you know, that's, that's unfortunate how you, you know, you're being so disagreeable with me, right? He doesn't say that. Look, look how he responds. Jesus, seeing, literally seeing, it says, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus equates them questioning of his power and authority for what it really is, to live in a way that is out of order with the created universe and out of order with the artist that has painted the majesty of the cosmos. Jesus sees it for what it is and calls it out. And we're to do the same. For the skeptic in the room, learn from the scribes. Come with an open mind. One of the most dangerous places you can be is to think you already know everything you need to know. The Bible calls that pride, and it doesn't say that God is annoyed by it. It says that God opposes the proud, and yet God gives grace to, draws near to the humble. We see that personified in Jesus right here. Because after all, these are the people, and this is the offense that will land him on the cross. But now look what we learned about the people. The healing ministry of Jesus points to the forgiving ministry of Jesus, but that you may know. Because after all, he says, it's hard to translate, it's intentionally so, so that you'll see the abrupt nature of what he's doing. He says, what's easier for me to do? Say your sins are forgiven? Because after all, you could just do that and there wouldn't be any physical evidence, right? I could say that right now, right? Like, I forgive you. That might not change anything, right? And so, so what's easier? To say something that you might not be able to actually see? Something that's not tangible? Or, in another case, is it easier to say, rise and walk? Is it easier to exercise my authority in a way that's beyond what you can imagine, and so therefore for you probably invisible? Or is it easier for me to do something that you can't deny? And he, as if just the, the logic is so powerful here. So that you will know, but that you may know that the Son of Man... Now this is, this is really fun for all of us who are, who are nerds of the Old Testament. I encourage you, read the prophet Daniel as he speaks to this. He's using the language of a Jewish prophet, a fulfillment of God's promise that one day there is one who will come as the Son of Man, the human one, 
He's already, we saw last week by the demons, the son of God, mysteriously, he is also a human. This son of man, this human one, the divine human one will come. And when he does, he will do something powerful. And Jesus says, so that you will know that the one thing that the son of man will do is to exercise authority over not just the cosmos and chaos and not just the demonic and evil, but also even over offenses against God. Rise, get up and walk. And he gave for them a tangible evidence, physical and visible, so that they would begin to contemplate the nature of our embodied souls, that Jesus came to redeem all of us, not just the created order and not just our physical bodies, although we long for that every day. But he came to redeem all of us, even our spiritual selves, our, in a way that as Western minds, we try to, we try to think of this and, and don't land on it very well. But you may feel singled out by one of those things, namely that you're a sinner that needs forgiveness and that might offend you. Or that maybe that like ultimately you have spiritual things worked out and, and so therefore you don't need Jesus to actually work in your life. But notice Jesus has authority over all. Jesus has authority over the body, the mind, the soul, every single way you could think of a human being. Jesus has power and authority over it to redeem it. And for those who embrace his claims upon our very soul, we begin to see how his claims on our physical bodies actually are a symptom of something bigger. And praise be to God, he's authoritative over all of it. Because he authored it, he can fix it. The proper response to the power and authority of Jesus is awe and glory. Did you hear how the people respond then? When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now here's the glorious thing we'll end on. We started with this idea that Jesus has authority over chaos, evil, and sin. But they marvel. They marvel that not only that God would give this Son of Man, this Jesus, this human one, such authority... But it's not just that. Notice the language is plural. They glorified God who had given authority not to a man, which is visible and obvious, but also that evidently this was an authority that Jesus was passing out. That not only does Jesus have the authority to heal and restore and forgive, but evidently that power in some mysterious way, he passes out to us. You'll remember this. Remember the crux of the Sermon on the Mount? The Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, is within the context of if you will forgive others, you will experience forgiveness. Because that's the beauty of it. God didn't just come to restore and redeem you. He came to give you the message of restoration and redemption to declare to the world. And here's the mystery. We have the power and authority of Jesus to do two things. To forgive and two, to declare his forgiveness to others. Imagine what you would do with all that power and authority. Have you ever thought for a minute that you would use that power and authority to forgive the people that you are currently holding a grudge against? It's pretty wild, isn't it? That's the power of God. And that is the power of God that flows through us. Now not only do we experience grace and forgiveness in God, because of Christ, we get to pass it on to others. Friend, that grudge you're holding, that person that did that awful thing, I know you can't imagine it now, but Jesus gives you the power and ability to forgive. It may not happen today, but that's what he came to do. 
And that's what made these people marvel. And how do we respond? We revel in that forgiveness. In just a moment, we're going to sing together and prepare our own hearts to, to take part in an institution that Jesus passed on to us as a picture of this very thing, the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, we're going we're to pray together. We're going to sing as we prepare to meet Jesus at this table. And here's the mystery. This is what put him on the cross, and this is the most provocative thing I can offer you. If you will look to Jesus, if you will lean on him and trust in him to be restored to God, to be forgiven and to be made right, he will forgive you. And I know what you might say just like that. Who are you to say such a thing? I know. That's offensive, isn't it? But in a moment, we declare a mystery that not only offends our natural sensibilities, but it begins to eradicate the work of sin and its grip on our own lives. That we look at the broken body in this little piece of bread and contemplate a mystery. That God would forgive us through it. And we contemplate the shed blood of Jesus in a cup of juice and we have a profound mystery to behold, don't we? That for those of us who look to him, we are not just satisfied in our bodies. We don't just get up and walk home like this man, but we're satisfied in our souls by his broken body. We are satisfied in the depths of our souls and the small picture of being satisfied by a, a, an unsatisfying snack of a, piece, of a cracker and juice is a miraculous indicator, a miraculous pointer to what Jesus is offering to you and me, that all who would come to him will be forgiven all who would come to him would find peace and joy in the creator forever. All who would come to him will one day walk with him, enjoy with him, have pleasures at his right hand forevermore, and every single tear will be wiped away. Everything that is broken will be repaired. Every single thing is being made new. You see how provocative this is? Dare we hope to ask or imagine that he is able to forgive and he is willing to show compassion and encourage and he offers himself. How is he able to say that he forgives? Because he lived the life that you and I could not. He died a death that you and I deserve to pay the penalty in the place of God as God definitively and completely and was vindicated in his sacrifice and his resurrection on the third day so that you and I would consider a profound and provocative truth that when Jesus looks at you and me who repent of our sin and look to him for hope, he says, do you hear it? Take heart, child of God. Because of who I am and what I've done for you, you are forgiven. Let's pray together and thank him for that. Jesus, thank you that you are the friend of sinners. Thank you that you and your mercy and kindness have come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, we, we behold a, a profound mystery that you, the creator and the author of the universe, would step into that universe and begin to redeem it, and that you would do it in humble and profound ways as a human one. Thank you for your mercy that's displayed for this man and his friends, but thank you even more for the promise you have fulfilled and offered to him Lord, we know that there are things that are broken in our bodies in this world. We are more than aware of that. Might we now begin to consider the mystery that you have come to heal and to restore all of those things and the place that you're starting is our right standing before the Father. 
Might we not, like the scribes, put our own hope in our own understanding, our own righteousness, confident in ourselves? But might we, like the friends of Jesus and all who saw, marvel that you would offer forgiveness, that you would welcome and heal and restore in a way that's beyond what we currently can imagine? Lift us up and edify us with these words as we prepare to receive this grace and celebrate it through your broken body and shed blood. Because it's in your name and through your body and blood that we receive these gifts. Amen.